Welcome to the podcast, Creating the Life You Want, a monthly podcast discussing different components and topics of designing, manifesting, and building the happy, healthy, purposeful life of your dreams. Hosted by Dr. Sonia M. Kelly, licensed clinical psychologist, author, spiritual healer, and founder of Golden Temple Meditations in Katati, California. Each month, Dr. Kelly will interview a guest on how they have created the life they want, engage in conversations with guests on a particular topic related to living one's dream life, or share her knowledge, insights, and personal experiences surrounding a particular component of a consciously designed life. Dr. Kelly can be reached via her website, www.goldentemplemeditations.com or by email at goldentemplemeditations at gmail.com. Today, our guest is a former Hollywood sounds effect movie editor, having worked at most of the major studios, including Warner Brothers, 20th Century Fox, Paramount, and Disney on such films as Dances with Wolves, The War of the Roses, and Awakenings. He has a PhD in transformative studies from the California Institute of Integral Studies, the author of the book, The Environmental Documentary, Cinema, activism in the 21st century, a founding member of cinema studies at Dominican University of California, and currently a professor of communications and media studies at Dominican University of California. Let's welcome Dr. John A. Duvall. Hi, John. Hi, Sonia. Good to be here with you. Glad you could join us today. So, before we get started with the meat of this stuff, we want to know, when you go to a new diner, a cafe, what is your go-to meal? <laughs> well, my go my favorite uh, restaurants are Thai restaurants, so my go-to meal is something like a, a Pad Ki Mao, a drunken noodle, something like that. A drunken noodle. I don't think I've had that one. What what exactly is in a drunken noodle? Well, it's a it's a it's a hot, uh, spicy Thai dish uh, based on uh, wide noodles. You know, wide the wide noodles and uh, got things okay. like peppers and hot peppers and tomatoes and stuff like that in it. Ah, really so you're a hot chitrat kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. And here in Rohnert Park, uh, uh, Lin, uh, Lin's Thai is the best Thai restaurant I know. So I'll put in a little plug for that. Okay, I've been there a few times. I like them, yeah. So, how are you creating the life that you want? Well, I, as a, um, in my early years, uh, I've made films and written written songs since I was very young. But occasionally, some of my some of my career choices have been detours from what I have felt like were my deepest callings, because I had to earn a living, and now. Yeah, now I'm approaching my senior years, and so I'm making a greater commitment than ever to finishing the projects that I began in earlier decades. Okay. 
such as I'm hearing the dog barking in the back. Well, uh, I've, <laughs> I've, I've written, a, yeah. I've written a number of screenplays and they're in various stages of incompletion, about half a dozen of them. And I'd like to sell those screenplays or some of them, or even one of them. And, uh, as far as the songs go, I've recently purchased some electric, uh, recording instruments and, and, uh, amplifiers and things. And so I'm starting going to start going into home production of some of my songs. Uh, that cool. have been heard by very, very few private audiences over the years. Okay. Okay. A man of many, many talents. So how did you become interested in films? Cause that seems to be a, a big chunk of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, career I, stuff. I've always loved movies as far back as I can remember. Uh, usually early ones I saw on television and, um, I began to think about a career in filmmaking in the in second grade and actually made my first home movie in third grade. And often I've been making films off and on since then, although I haven't done the only film I've produced in recent times is a documentary called Peak Oil and Transition that is on YouTube. Uh, if you okay. search for that title and my name, you can find that on YouTube. Okay. And what was that again? Uh, Peak Oil and Transition is the documentary film that I posted on YouTube. Peak Oil and Transition. That's okay. Correct. Yeah. And as far as my scripts go, my film, my feature film scripts, I, I enjoy a, a diversity of genres from romantic comedies to science fiction to serious human dramas and, uh, you know, satirical uh, dark comedies. So, you know, I'm all over the map as far as my screenwriting goes. Wow, I'd love to see some of those um, come to life. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You and me um, too. <laughs> well, considering that you're already a very accomplished individual, I have no doubt that those will come to life. Uh, Thank you. So power, how power did... of positive thinking. Well, yes, yes. I mean, Dr. Duvall, yes. I mean, <laughs> it takes a lot to become, become uh, to have a PhD, as you yeah. do. Uh, I'm quite familiar with that myself. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> how long, how much it takes. So, yeah, once you put your mind to it, I have no doubt that those that's going to come to light. How did you go from a Midwest country boy to the LA film scene to a wine country communications professor? <laughs> I, lo I love that question. It's a, it's a really funny question. I, I was never a Midwest country boy. I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, okay. which is a, a large city. And, uh, but, but it's true, there's no film industry there. And so I realized fairly early on that if I wanted to get involved in filmmaking, I was gonna have to go to Los Angeles. And so that's what I did in 1979 and was fortunate enough to get into the University of Southern California Cinema School. And then from there, uh, I, I got my Master's of Fine Arts in Cinema Production and then worked in Hollywood sound effects editing for about uh, 10, to 10 years, about a decade. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that, that's how I got into the film business. Cool. So when you were filling out your application to go to USC, uh, in Los Angeles, 
Did you put on the application that you made your first film? What'd you say? Third grade? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, well, do you remember if they commented on that when you uh, interviewed for, or was there an interview process when you were going to get into school in Los Angeles? There, it's interesting. Applying to film school is, is rather different from applying to most programs because at least at the time that I went to USC, they would not look at your films because their philosophy was if you're rich enough, you could have paid somebody else to make a professional film and enter it in your name and say, I made this film. So they mostly go on written information. And oh, that's funny. Yes, they certainly did know that I had made films, you know, in, in elementary and high school and stuff like that. I mentioned that my history there. And I should mention, too, that the, the first time I applied to USC in 1979, I was not admitted. I was put on a waiting list and never got in. And at that time, I was still living in Indiana, and I also was asking for financial aid. And in the meantime, I had moved to, to LA. And, and so my second application, I said I was living in LA and I didn't need financial aid. And that time I got in. So you can, you can, <laughs> you can make, your, oh, that's yeah, funny. you can make your judgment about what the crucial factors were in that decision. <laughs> well, I, it does sound like they were, they knew you were serious once you moved to Los Angeles. Yep. And well, you know, money talks, what can we say? <laughs> so, um, Oh, I, I don't know if I what fully I, answered your, your, um, second half of your question about a communications professor. Um, you know, I, I worked in LA, I left LA in 1993 and I went back to school to get a master's in telecommunications management. And after that, I got a job uh, jump-starting a film program at Elon University in North Carolina. And I was there for seven years. And then I got an opportunity to move to Northern California to work at Dominican University, uh, which was also trying to jump-start a film program. And so, um, and the, the classes that I've taught are, some are film production courses. I teach a creative film production course, which is fictional film. And I teach a documentary production course, which is nonfiction film. And then I've also told, uh, taught other courses in film history and film theory and film aesthetics. So, you know, I uh, had a, quite a, a, you know, diversity of courses that I taught a Dominican. Nice. Nice. Now, now I'm hearing the dog bark in the background. What can I say? That's my dog, Shadow. He wants to be a star <laughs> just like everybody <Yeah>. else. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, uh, I, I'm not, I think I won't encourage him by yelling, <laughs> hi, Shadow. Uh, okay. So what exactly did you do in the film industry in Hollywood and in Los Angeles area? Well, uh, there, we have something called the USC Mafia, which is a network of people who work in the film industry who came out of USC. So the first couple of jobs, which I got for, which I did for either no pay or minimum wage, were, were a couple of independent films. And then after that, I, I became a, a staff editor at Canon Films, 
And then in 1989, I think, I got into the union. Maybe it was 88. I got into the union. And uh, at that point, I could work on, you know, the regular large known Hollywood studios like Warner Brothers and 20th Century Fox and Paramount and, and so on. So uh, then, I, you know, for a few years, I was working in, in on union films. And then after that, what happened really, there were several things that caused me to leave Hollywood. One was marrying a woman from Indiana who didn't really like L.A., and that certainly had an impact. <laughs> yeah. And, and the other was uh, the, uh, the turning the industry over from analog, which is editing on actual film, to digital editing, which I knew nothing about. And that was a tough, tough transition to make. And I didn't work, uh, I wasn't on staff at a studio or anything where I had training in digital editing. So, you know, overnight in the early 90s, my uh, income dropped by about, I don't know, you know, 30, 35%. Uh, I was only making 35% of what I was making the previous several years. And so at that point, I decided it was maybe time to look for something else to do. And that's when I decided to go into education and went back to school and the rest is I've already described. Yeah, it is interesting. People do kind of change an emphasis in their career several times in their life. I started out working community mental health, worked in the prison system for quite a while, and now I've started my own private practice. So all of which have to do with mental health, but different aspects of it. Right. Yeah. So yeah, you know, you're still involved with media and film, but instead of behind the scenes, you're teaching other people how to work, I guess, behind the scenes, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I do want to mention, uh, I've had a few uh, students who have gone on to success uh, in Hollywood and the, the most successful two, uh, one of my fellow students, Jay Roach, who I went to school with and worked on films together with, was the director of the Meet the Parents films and the uh, Austin Powers films, and he's also made, he's won a couple of Emmys for documentary work. Uh, I mean, documentary TV work. So Jay has cool. done well. And also Larry, Larry, Larry Karaszewski, who I was uh, the uh, uh, lecture professor for in, at USC. Larry is, is the, uh, has written with his partner, Scott Alexander, a, a, couple, a number of successful films like Ed Wood, and the people versus Harry Flint. And he has a film out right now with Eddie Murphy called Dolomite is my name. Oh. So these are some of the people that I've had the pleasure of having, of being their teacher in class. And some of them are doing very, very well. Oh, that's cool. Very cool. It's, I think that's part of the rewards in life is, is seeing how we've helped others in, have achieved their goals. I think that is one of the most rewarding things is, is at least for me, it is to. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm looking for the words. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, uh, I still have people that I went to school with in Hollywood who are successful and, you know, can, will look at my scripts and give me feedback on my scripts and things like that. So, and, and, and I've got a number of other students, uh, former students who are in LA either in LA working as actors or filmmakers at a, you know, less prestigious level. 
And also at least a couple of my former students are teaching film in universities now. So yeah, it's, it's funny as a professor, you can never really know what contributions you've made to somebody's life. But, um, I certainly am very happy that some of them seem to have done pretty well. It's, it's, it's very cool. And now I find it quite interesting how people can be modest. I guarantee you, you talk to a thousand people in this county, they will not have had the experiences that you've had. So I think you're being quite modest. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah. Um, I try. <laughs> uh so yeah that's probably i think one of your other interests is meditating isn't that correct yeah i I, many many years ago when i was in la i took the transcendental meditation course and you know my 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 faithfulness to that process has come and gone over the years but i still try and meditate in the morning when i can and sometimes in the afternoon it's it's a it's a centering process of trying to figure out what's really important and what what you're going to do in the day yeah, I think that whole meditating thing, which I, my business is called Golden Temple Meditations and I have an audio book. So meditation is a big thing to me as well. Um, but I think the whole meditation things helps us to keep, to be humble. And I think I'm hearing that in you is the humbleness. Well, you're, you're very kind. Thank you. You're, you're welcome. So in Hollywood, and you talked about some of the people that you've worked with who are currently in Hollywood um, and in the film industry, what would you say are a couple of, well, first of all, I'm still not clear as to what a sound sound editor effects. Okay. Yeah. So sure. It does. Sure. Well, let me explain the work that I did when I was in Hollywood. Okay. Uh, First of all, most people don't know that about 75% of the sound you hear in films isn't recorded on a location. It's recorded afterwards in studios and on, on uh, you know, things like that. Uh, I mean, the, the, big, the big sounds like the car crashes and the explosions and things, of course, are recorded outside at some remote location. But most of the everyday sorts of sounds, everything from footsteps of people to the sounds of people uh, you know, clinking silverware while they're eating dinner and, and just most cloth movement. Most of the sounds in movies are recorded in studios after the fact in a process called Foley. And I was a Foley, uh, basically my career was mostly 90% of it was Foley programming, recording and editing. So I would sit in a sound stage with people who were on the stage creating sound effects with, you know, all sorts of props and things. And uh, then, uh, you know, I, I would make judgments about what was working and what wasn't. And we'd try things until we had sound effects that sounded really good. And then those sound effects would be uh, edited into the film. Back when I was working, we weren't working digitally. We were working on, on mag film, magnetic film. Uh, and you'd put the, the picture in one part of a machine and the and the, the sound recording on the other part of the machine, and you'd cut them till they synced up right, and until everything looked like it was real. And then in the end, after my work was done, this these tracks would be taken into a, a sound mixing studio, and they'd all be mixed in together at the appropriate levels, 
and then you'd come out with, you know, the soundtrack for the film. The whole process takes, you know, anywhere from two to three months to uh, complete usually. So for a two hour film, it takes two or three months to do the sound editing? Well, the whole process from the beginning of the sound recording through the mixing and the, for the final film, yeah, about three months. Whoa. It's a lot of work. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. Now, um, I every once in a while, they'll show either a recreation of the films from the 1930s or something where, where um, people were on the radio. <laughs> yeah. And I think I know where you're going. Yeah. And so you'd have, yeah. And so you'd have somebody with like a cowbell, uh, and wind or, or the, the person talks and they say something dramatic and you hear the uh, piano go da 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 or, or maybe there was something that would make, this this wobbly sheet of metal right, that would yeah. make the sound of thunder. Yeah, what we were doing is that writ large. You know, we we instead of having you know half a dozen sound effects uh, next to the microphone of a radio program, we'd have a whole room full of of things to create sounds. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, far more than you could ever do on the radio live. But I do know what you're talking about. I've seen videos of that. You can go onto YouTube, I think, and find if you put Foley recording or something like that onto YouTube, you can see movies of people creating these sorts of, of effects for films. Cool. I was... It's very, it's very amusing sometimes. I mean, one of the most famous is when, when you, for horses hoofs, when you have horses galloping, you use coke, uh, a half of a coconut shell and you put that down on cement or on dirt or whatever the horse is riding on and, make make uh you know make the horse's hoofs out of coconut okay okay that's cool that's cool so uh just trying to give our audience a perspective on what you're doing what so that was the images that came to mind that uh yeah went along with that okay so now i understand the digital because they did this in the music industry as well it's just about all the stuff that you guys did the Foley kind of stuff you did was recorded and now you can kind of push a button and that just comes up. Well, a lot of the creation of sound effects still happens live with real live people and live uh, uh, tools on a, in a studio, but the, the editing of it, the, the syncing them up with picture, that's what's been digitized. And that requires basically, you know, basically computer, I mean, sound effects editors, that used to work on machines now work on laptops and you know their tools are all digital uh you can i i should mention that there are a lot of sound effects that are created digitally rather than in a studio i had the pleasure of uh, gary rydstrom who's won several academy awards for uh, skywalker sound uh he was also a classmate of mine and i had the pleasure of coming up to the lucas ranch uh, skywalker sound when he was recording or creating, I should say, the Whoa. sound effects for Jurassic Park. And okay. he would, he had taken, he had somebody that went all over the country to zoos recording sounds of various animals over a whole entire year. And then he would take those sounds and input them into a digital sampler called a synclavier. And then he would combine them. Uh, so a lot of the dinosaurs you heard in Jurassic Park are combinations of five or six different animals 
all mixed together and modulated up and down for pitch. And that's how they created, uh, you know, those, those dinosaur sounds. It was, wow. it was a lot of, a lot of fun to watch somebody else do that, but I've never <laughs> had the skills to do that myself. All right. So in your classes now, what are you teaching your students? Well, first of all, I try to teach them how to write a good script. Um, if it's a fictional script, uh, you know, I, I've, <laughs> I've been studying how to write a good screenplay for something like 35 or 40 years now. <laughs> okay. And, and so, the, you know, in terms of the character development and the st story structure and the research that goes into writing a script, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of stuff. Well, I, if, for your readers, I should say anybody who's considering doing any writing, either fiction or screenwriting or anything, and that's, the lesson is basically all writing is rewriting. You know, the typical movie script goes through about 10 different phases or drafts before it's ever ready to actually be put into production. I believe it. And, and so, you know, all writing is rewriting. But I try to teach the students, my students, the, the basics of structuring a story. And then after that, you go into the art of the film craft and talk about everything from film, from composition on the screen, the size of the screen, which we call the aspect ratio, to uh, the, the use of line and space in that composition. And then you get into things like use of color, uh, the direction of actors, how you break a scene down into different shots, uh, which we call mise-en-scene. And then uh, after you actually uh, shoot the film, then you've got to go into the editing and the sound process. And, and there's lots of principles of good editing, different sorts of editing for different sorts of scenes we talk about and then finally the use of sound not just sound effects but music and all that stuff so that's what i teach in my film production uh, classes a lot of stuff all right all right yeah there's a lot that goes into our entertainment and and information sources yeah so what are a couple of the the things when you're in the film industry in in hollywood and maybe even now that just stand out as funny or entertaining or, or, oh my God, I can't believe that it just happened. <laughs> well, when you say funny, the things that come up in my mind right away are the bloopers, you know, and every, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of the, the extra features on, on DVDs or, or and things are, um, you know, the, the, the bloopers, the mistakes where an actor flubs the line or something bad happens, or the, there's a mistake, you know, you're shooting a, a Western that's supposed to happen in the 19th century and an airplane flies through the background of the shot. <laughs> I mean, there are all these, all these different, you know, those are the funny things that knock you out when, when I don't know if there's much funny about making the films. It's, it's so much harder work than you imagine it is. Uh, you know, for when people go to a movie and they see everything happening, it all seems so natural and it should, I mean, uh, it, you know, you don't want to sit and watch a movie thing about all the work that went on behind the scenes to make these things happen. And it's not just the, the sound effects or the writing, but it's it's uh, it's it's the uh, uh, I don't know, my mind, I had a mind went blank, but all the all the things that go behind the scenes to make the thing work. And it's if it, if it does work, then it all flows seamlessly and every all the elements work well together. And you don't you're not thinking about watching a movie. You're just following the story uh, as it should be. So there were a few things uh, uh, I had a few. I didn't meet a whole lot of movie stars when I was working in Hollywood because the sound effects guys or people don't usually interact with the actors much. 
But there, I had a few opportunities. I got to uh, interview Jack Lemon once. I was the person doing the sound recording for this interview with Jack Lemon that someone else was doing. And it was such a delightful time talking to him because he, talk about humility. You know, he didn't, he, he was not, he was just an ordinary person. Now he asked us more questions about our lives than we asked him about his. And I was just really uh, very much impressed with what a real human being he was and not somebody who had a really big head about being a Academy Award winning movie star. Oh, cool. And, uh, and also Richard Chamberlain. I got to have lunch with Richard Chamberlain once. Uh, he was working on a, he was acting in a film I was working on. And uh, so that was a pleasant experience, just being able to talk to him about some of his experiences and the films he had worked on and so on. And uh, when I was at USC, uh, I got to hear and speak with a whole bunch of really famous people like the directors, John Huston and Orson Welles and wow. Kevin, Kevin Costner, who directed Dances with Wolves, which I worked on. So, you know, I got to meet a few people, uh, you know, really famous people, Martin Scorsese, Jerry Lewis. These were some of the people that spoke at USC when I was there. So that, that was a lot of fun too. Cool. So um, what's a lot of fun for you now? Well, I do enjoy teaching. I'm, I'm only about a year away from retirement. So I'm going to be devoting the next decade of my life just to my script, working on my scripts. But I really do enjoy teaching and, and serving my students and trying to help them not only learn about film or learn about the things I teach in classes, but also think about their lives and what they want to do with their lives and what gives their lives meaning. So yeah, there it's, it's a very, very, uh, I think one of the things that I got into teaching rather than when, when I walked out of the film business was the sense of service. You know, um, Ram Das was my spiritual teacher or guru back in the late eighties and early nineties before he had his stroke. And I took several workshops with him and Ram Das translated means servant of God. Uh. And so, you know, the idea of serving other people is crucial to his spiritual teachings. And so that was one of the reasons I got into teaching and out of the movie business, because the movie business is a great ego feed as you drive your car into the, you know, studio lot and flip your uh, ID card to them and they let you in <laughs> and having your name on the big screen and all that. But, but, Teaching is in many ways more rewarding because you're actually serving people. You know, you're you're trying to help people who are just starting their lives, professional lives anyway, uh, uh, and finding you know finding out what they really want to do with those lives and and what what they're really talented at. And you know, it's 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 uh, it gives me a lot of satisfaction. As far as what did I do in my personal life? Well, I play guitar, I watch movies. Uh, I hang out with my friends, small circle of good friends that I have. And, and that's probably, I travel a little bit. Uh, I went to, uh, to Europe, uh, uh, trip to Europe, this, uh, through central Europe, uh, Austria, uh, 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 Czechoslovakia, Czech, Czech Republic and Southern Germany. And that was fun. And, and last year I was in Paris for a week and a half. Nice. So, you know, I, so I like to travel. I went up to Crater Lake this past August and that was fun. So traveling is nice. I try not to travel too much though, because I'm very energy conscious and I don't like to be too much of a, a contributor to climate change. Oh, okay. Well, there's a couple of interesting things you said in there and you went so fast. I'm like, ah, ah, um, sorry. <laughs> I can keep, uh, I, keep I can I can keep talking until you want to interrupt me. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, I was listening to what you were saying about teaching and helping students to focus on what they want to do with their lives. And then I was thinking about how you are focusing and and on what you want to do with your life. So you're you're getting ready to retire and I quote retired from my state job uh, a little over a year ago basically because I want to take my life in a different direction. And what you you said is that you want to spend the next portion of your life making some of the films that you've dreamed about making since teenager, 20s, 30s, uh, and that you're actually going to do it. You're actually taking the steps you need while you're reasonably healthy enough to do it. And that's part of creating the life that you want is taking those steps. Uh, yeah, well, life is a series of, of phases. You know, you, you go through your youth where you're with your family and your worldview is mostly molded by your family. Yes. And then you go to school and you get exposed to a whole lot of other things and that changes who you are, sometimes changes what direction you want your professional life to take. And then you become a working person in your 20s and 30s and 40s and 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 develop a career for yourself and of course one thing they say in education these days is most people will go through you know half a dozen different jobs or careers in the course of their life because our society changes so fast so um you know that's one of the reasons in communications and media studies that we say you know we teach you to write we teach you to speak we teach you to think critically and no matter what job you get in life you're going to have to be able to write and to speak and to think clearly and critically. So, so that's, you know, that's the, what the basis of the, an education uh, can do. And then let's see, I got to go back to the original question you asked. Oh yeah. Well, most of the scripts that I'm working on now are, are scripts that I've developed since film school. So that's basically, I graduated in 84. So that's basically about 35 years of developing scripts. And yes, I, I I'm finished. I'm, Developing scripts while you're working a full-time job and having uh, uh, a social life and a romantic life and all of that. So it's not as if you were just sitting around and that's all you were doing was developing scripts. Yeah, of course. But but I've I, I reached the point that I don't feel I can really, you know, I have my life's work, you know, my life, things that I wanted to finish before they close the casket on me or whatever. And... <laughs> And it involves, you know, finishing these scripts and finishing some of these songs and producing them. And, you know, I'd like to, you know, be able to close my eyes for the last time and say I really accomplished what I hoped to accomplish. You want to do that Frank Frank Sinatra song, I Did It My Way. (laughs) Well, yeah, somewhat. I mean, that's, I always, my dad hated that song because it sounded so egotistical. But, well, uh, and my lo- my mother loved that song. W- well, we won't go into that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I I do think it's good to know what your way is. You know, to 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 know what it is to be an individual and decide about your own life path and all that. I think that's important. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Now you kind of mentioned that um, you left Hollywood originally to because your wife wanted you to wanted to leave the area 
can you talk a little bit about your romantic life, how it's kind of progressed over time? Well, I'm not going to say anything more about my marriage. It, it ultimately did not work out. And I, I was divorced from uh, my wife and I divorced in uh, 2005, 2005, 2006. Yeah. Uh, so since then, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I'm living in a very unique sort of relationship because I live with a married couple and they have been non-monogamous all the way through their 40 year old marriage. And, and so, and, you know, I, I, uh, developed a, a romantic relationship, uh, with, with the wife, with husband's knowledge and permission and all that. And then a few years later, they invited me to move in with them. So I, now live with the three of us live together uh, in what you'd call a, a polyamorous triad. All right. And we all, so for those we all who, also have other. <clears throat> for those. Well, I was just going to say, add what, one more thing to that. And that's that we all have at least one romantic relationship with somebody outside of our triad. So it's, you know, it's, it's an open relationship uh, uh, for all of us. And for those who've never heard of polyamory before, it's, I'm sure there's a clearer definition than this, but it's basically different from polygamy in that both the men and women have mutually consenting multiple partners. Everybody is responsible with their own bodies. They're honest in the, on the best circumstances, honest with each other about the situation and are of the knowledge that not every need can be met by two people in a monogamous situation. Um, yeah, that's a pretty good de definition or description. I think there, there are two words. Polygamy usually refers to a man, one man who has a number of wives. And there's another term polyandry, which I think refers to the opposite, which is a woman who has multiple male partners. Uh, polyamory is not, uh, you know, there's there's no sexual hierarchy in polyamory. So every everyone, man, woman, and even if you don't identify as as you know, if you have a non-gendered self-identification, uh, you know, everybody is the playing field is pretty level, so to speak. It's not that anybody has, uh, you know, the the power card, so to speak, in in, in the relationship. Yeah, uh, polyamory is very diverse. I've seen situations where there the primary partner gets the say about other partners, but it, it works. It works. Um, and well, I guess I'm, t I'm sort of talking about what my own ideal, my own ideal for polyamory is. Um, you're right. Every, every individual relationship works out its own set of rules and, and, you know, uh, regulations or whatever, or agreements, but, um, yeah, most most of the in the culture that I'm in, uh, it's it's not like neither partner has any say over what their partner other partners do, but it's more a matter of consensus of finding finding uh, agreements that everybody can buy into. Because too often, if one partner has too rigid a set of agreements that they want that the other partner can't agree to, then usually those relationships fall apart. You're right. Yeah. But, I do, but I do want to emphasize one thing you said when you were describing polyamory earlier, and that's, it's really about honesty. 
you know, a lot of people, they think about polyamory and they say, it's all about having sex with a bunch of different people. And no, the fact of the matter is in our culture, the majority of people have sex outside their basic relationships. Well, yeah, that's true. And it's called cheating. Yeah. It's called cheating. <laughs> and and in polyamory, everything is out and above board and, and honest and discussed. And so it's not, you know, it's... I think the big biggest difference is that polyamory is open and honest and collaborative and not, you know, running around behind people's backs. Yeah, very much so. I sometimes wonder if people do the whole cheating thing to get their need for adventure met and for uh, drama and suspicion is because all of that, or at least a good chunk of it is taken out of the picture when everybody knows what's happening ahead of time and are in agreement. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and, and it's also a lot of flexibility is involved. I mean, uh, sometimes in a relationship, you'll have disagreements about what, you know, maybe about the person your partner is getting involved with or the, the amount of time you spend with various people. And, and th th these, you have to be flexible. You have to be willing to negotiate these things and not always insist upon having your own way. But, um, but it's, you know, it's a, it's a collaborative process. And if people are willing to really engage in an open and honest and compassionate way, then you can work stuff out most of the time. Very true. Very true. Now, one of your other passions has to do with the environment. Mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I've been interested in, I've been concerned about our society uh, for a long, long time. Uh, ever since, uh, I guess, you know, the first Earth Day in 1969, when we got to see the picture of the Earth taken from a spaceship, you know, you, you know, I've, I've, and I've known that we were, uh, you know, ever since I read in 1976, the book, The Limits to Growth, which talked about how in the early 21st century, we'd begin running short on essential resources. And that's, I think, happening right now. And also the climate change thing, where we were, we've known for the last 30 years that a consensus of scientists believe that the climate is warming and that it's caused by human activity. And yet our politics has gotten all wrapped around uh, the polarization about this issue. And that's really unfortunate. Uh, so, so, and there are a lot of other areas where there are really important environmental threats exist, like lack of water in some places, um, lack of shelter, uh, the, the, the migration of people from the rural areas into the cities. You know, we just passed the point a few years ago that over half of the world's population lives in big cities, which was certainly not two, 200 years ago or even 100 years ago. Yeah. So there, there are a lot of things, and that's why I produced this book. I, I'd watched a lot of environmental documentaries, and some of them are famous, like Al Gore's film about an inconvenient truth uh, or Josh Fox's Gasland films. But most of the environmental documentary films about really important issues never get seen by hardly anybody. Uh, and so I, I wanted to write a book to publicize a lot of these lesser known films, uh, partly just to convey what those films say, you know, the content of the films and the environmental threats. Now, what, what, yeah. What's the name of the book again? It's called The Environmental Documentary Cinema Activism in the 21st Century. And it's available on Amazon. <laughs> Uh, you can order it in hardback or paperback. And, uh, you know, it's been in publication for about two years now, since 2017. Okay. 
Look. Yeah. And the, and the book is targeted at the general public, but it's also targeted at filmmakers because part of what I talk about in the film or in the book is how these films were made, how, where they got the money, you know, logistical uh, uh, stuff. Um, and, uh, and I also, uh, you know, was hoping that the book would be utilized in at the academic in college or, uh, for, uh, for students to understand, uh, you know, studying, studying environment and documentary filmmaking, uh, that it would be a sort of as a textbook for, for some maybe courses like that. I don't, I don't know if that's happening or not, but I was hoping it would be. Well, it's certainly from what I read is certainly up there in the category of other textbook kind of books I've read over the years. And I've read quite a few of those in lots of my classes. So it is of that quality. I think it would do well as a textbook. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I got a lot of good recommendations from other authors who've written along, along similar lines. I, I felt pretty good about the book. Whenever you write a first book, and of course, most people don't ever do that. But when you write a first book, you learn a whole lot about targeting your audience and about the process of publication and all sorts of things you didn't know before. So if I was going to go back and do it again, I'd probably do a better job. Or if I was going to do another book, I'd probably do a better job. Yeah. But, um, you know, that's not my focus uh, in the future. It's more like the creative writing part. Yeah, I understand that. I'm I, having written an audio book, a book, the script is available in Kindle. Mm -hmm. You do learn a lot the first time. And then you look when everything's done, you go, oops, I should have did that. Oops, I should have done that. Ah, oh, I didn't know that yet. <laughs> right. But you're right. Most people do not write books and actually follow through and get them published. So, and again, and it's a good size book that you wrote. Um, yeah, it's about 350 pages, including the references and things. Yeah. And um, it certainly has things that are still relevant in the media right now. Like um, I read a piece about Monsanto and what they did with food production and seed and so forth yeah. uh, in your book and uh, farming. And now, right now in the media, they're talking about Monsanto being sued because they're main pesticide roundup is now being shown to cause cancer now that's in the united states and in, in europe and other places yeah. they're, they're ahead of the game so yeah yeah europe has been much more willing to uh you know regulate to control or in some cases actually ban the uh, the gmo foods and, and other sorts of chemicals that are, have been shown to have carcinogenic effects in the environment. So GMO uh, this, meaning genetically oh, gen modified yeah. organ uh, organism. Yeah, G uh, GMO uh, food is yeah, it's been genetically modified, and people don't know it. But you know, like I think, don't quote me on these percentages, but something like you know, eighty percent of the of, of uh, soy that we eat now and corn. You know, these GMO products are ubiquitous in our environment and it's really hard to get and uh, to get away from them and part of the problem uh deborah coons garcia who's uh, jerry garcia's uh, uh widow i guess um made a film called the future of food and she and i interviewed her for my book and i 
Uh, Jared, Jared Garcia is from The Grateful Dead, right? Yeah, of The Grateful oh. Dead, right. Okay. Uh, but she's become a documentary filmmaker and has made a couple of really good films. But The Future of Food is about, you know, the threats that, that GMO products pose for uh, our environment. Like a lot of the things that they put on the pesticides that they use, gen, uh, chemical pesticides, uh, also have the effect of like killing butterflies or killing bees and things like that. So they have unintended negative consequences. And also it's almost impossible to isolate genetically modified agricultural products to the places where they're grown because the wind will blow, blow across and pick up things and deposit them into other people's fields. And then Monsanto has actually been known to sue people for stealing their you know, patented products, just because the wind blew some of their genetics, some of their products into the farmer's fields. And, you know, Monsanto, I mean, I don't want to get too much into the politics on this interview, but I mean, Monsanto simply wants to create, control the world's food supply. And that's really dangerous for so many. They have these, these crops with, uh, with uh, seeds that you can only use once, you know, traditionally farmers have, uh, you know, use their seeds over and over and over again every year for generations. And now Monsanto's seeds will like die after the first time you use them. And so you can't, you have to keep going back to Monsanto to buy new seeds. And it's nuts, you know, it's just, it's just crazy. Yeah. You know, and we, the, the, the government, the government that we have right now in the United States, instead of trying to really control these things, is just trying to, you know, open the floodgates and letting uh, oil companies and coal companies go on to protected land, government lands and drill for stuff. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, they, they ought to call the environmental protection agency these days, the environmental destruction agency, because that's what really what it's doing, what the administration is doing with their policies. Yeah. But don't get me started on politics. Okay. Okay. Now, for those of us who are know just a little bit about what's going on with these environmental issues, but understand the importance of them, understand that they are important, even though we, even though we don't know the details thereof, what would you suggest we do in our daily lives, um, small changes in our habits that would help our environment? Well, I know I kind of anticipated you might ask me that. And the first thing, the first thing that's important for people to understand is even if we all spontaneously, spontaneously started to reduce our environmental impact individually, it wouldn't solve the problem. You know, we need to have leadership at the, at the community level and the state level and the federal government level and at the worldwide level to try to bring things like climate change under control because individuals doing stuff will be better than nothing, but it's not going to fundamentally uh, solve the problem now. Okay. So what can you do? What could I do? Well, you know, I talk about what I do. I try to travel less because I'm not using as much as many resources. If I do travel, I try to go by train instead of by plane or by car. Um, I, why? Because that's more efficient. You know, it, it uses less energy per, passenger per, per traveler uh, that flying is about the worst way you can go in terms of per capita energy consumption and a train is about the best way you can go um, 
just in terms of how much energy it takes to move your body from point A to point B. Um, also, you know, getting an electric car or a hybrid car would be is better because that would reduce your, your consumption of oil, gasoline. Um, and so it's more, re the electric and the hybrid are more renewable sources. Right. Yeah. They, they, well, gasoline. yeah, they, they, they run, they have batteries that, that, uh, you can either charge from the electrical grid or the, the hybrid, the, the, the running of the car charges itself. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I mean, the fundamental problem there, there, there are two fundamental problems, uh, that are the most central that most people don't understand. The first is climate change, which is where we're putting greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane out into the atmosphere that uh, increases the amount of heat that's trapped in the, in the, in the, in the, on the earth. And that raises temperatures very, very slowly, incrementally, you know, maybe a degree per century or something like that. But people don't realize that the difference in world temperature from now to the time of the dinosaurs is only about like five degrees average. So, you know, even a couple of degrees uh, over a century can really change the climate patterns. Uh, you know, places that are dry will get drier. Uh, the, the storms, hurricanes and tornadoes will get stronger. The changes of which we're seeing some of that. Yeah. yeah. And the well, look right here in California, you know, we used to have a fire season where during half of the year there wouldn't be a lot of forest fires. Now, as our former governor Schwarzenegger said, there is no fire season. The whole year is a fire season. And we've seen that every other year we have a devastating fire that forces, you know, thousands of people out of their homes and destroys homes. And, and, you know, it's, this is real, you know? And so, and, and if we keep going, what's called business as usual, you know, the population keeps expanding and everybody wants to keep using as many resources, the, the end game is that we'll wind up having a, a, a world that's barely habitable in a lot of regions. Uh, you know, we probably, well, I want to, yeah. add a couple of things there. Sure. My middle name is Pollyanna <laughs> for all. <laughs> that's good. Okay. I love it. I didn't know that. that that's <laughs> well, your, actually it's not. That's your but... slang middle name. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. But for those of you who have never heard of the movie or need a refresher, Pollyanna was a little girl who came to live with her maiden aunt in the turn of the 19th 20th century um, after her parents were killed um, and for some reason when people say you're a pollyanna they make the assumption that you've never dealt with any pain mm. you've you're unrealistic you're positive for no darn reason and you you've just lived a sheltered life yeah. which if anybody's actually watched this movie and paid attention to it it's quite the opposite uh -huh. you this child was orphaned before the age of 12 i think she's about 10 in the movie um and her father was a minister who believed in the in in looking at the what he called the glad text in the Bible. So she she came to this town that was miserable, a little tiny town 
because her because her aunt was miserable and her aunt was the wealthiest person in town who controlled every everything and everyone including the minister <laughs> so as she and everybody in the town knew her experience that this child was orphaned and this child was living with a well shall we say a person with a witchy attitude <laughs> and who was difficult to deal with and they saw how she brought the joy in life to people and brought had joy in life for her the, and the, the interesting thing is the end of this movie the girl falls and she's broken her back she you don't know you never find out whether or not she walks again but the whole town came forward to support her because she had supported them um and i was listening to you and i was thinking when i was a child a while ago <laughs> there was no such thing as a recycling bin there was one trash can that the garbage man would pick up and that was it well now every week at least here in cal well actually most areas in the united states uh they there's multiple trash bins there's one for trash there's one for recycling there's one for um green waste like um, gardening you cut your trees you cut stuff down you put it in there and then there's i remember the <clears throat> there was at one point the great lakes around michigan and lake erie and those so forth <clears throat> they were so polluted that it was just toxic to be anywhere near them and there's been a certain degree of cleaning up that has happened so i i listened to your i read your your book and i think it's very important for that kind of stuff to be brought to people's attention because if you don't know about it you can't make a conscious decision to do something different and and now in the last 10 years maybe 15 at this point we have electric cars and hybrid cars everywhere i there was no hybrid car when i started to drive <laughs> so there are some changes that are happening also birth rates have leveled out in what's called the first world countries uh because people are realizing that if you have three children most likely those three children will grow up whereas a hundred years ago if you had 10 children you'd be lucky if half of them grow up uh, because of diseases and so forth. And in um, there's certain areas of the world that are colder and less harsher environments, their populations are starting to shrink because of the, the availability of birth control and also the, the knowledge that harshness is happening. So I'm looking forward to seeing how people like you who bring the bring the issues to the attention of the populace and people like me who were willing to do a little bit and those in between who might quietly influence the um, decision makers positively. It, it probably needs to be people who have a nice chunk of money they're willing to put into and some political clout to put into these positive changes happening. But I really think they are possible. I mean, I also remember, I, I cannot remember this, where this was from, because it's so old. Uh, some book I read 
was quoting something from the 1800s about an article from a headline from a newspaper, world to go dark, whale oil shortage. Well, <laughs> yeah, we don't yeah. really use whale oil anymore. <laughs> um, I've, re I've actually heard, can't remember the details of this, but this possibility and this one is way out there at least right now while we're while we're recording here in 2019 that a lot of the oil we're using is actually coming from creatures that are living now die um a, a couple of miles or so underneath the earth's surface and their bodies get compact compacted and so oil is still being created. But like I said, I, I'm not sure about that one. <laughs> <laughs> so for people who are interested in getting in touch with your, getting a copy of your book, you mentioned it's on Amazon. I right. saw it on a few yeah. other places. Where <clears throat> else to your knowledge is it located? I, I, I don't know. I mean, you could probably order it through uh, any of your local bookstores, I, Copperfields or places like that. Um, I'm, uh, if you want to order it online, Amazon is the one I'm most familiar with. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how you could get it otherwise. And I don't want to, Sonia. I don't want to make it sound like I'm a total pessimist and don't think that there are any possible solutions out there. I, I, I'm very happy to to see scientists in various fields trying to work on things that might, uh, you know, make our our energy system more resilient, smart grids. Uh, stuff like that, but I, I just, just to you, you use Pollyanna uh, as a metaphor. So I'll use Cassandra. A lot of people, when you talk about how bad things are getting, uh, people will call you a Cassandra, uh, which is a little bit like calling you Chicken Little, going around saying the sky is falling. And I would remind people that Cassandra was warning the Trojans that the Greeks were going to come use some sort of stealth attack, which turned out to be the Trojan horse. And the Trojans didn't listen to Cassandra, and it turned out that Cassandra was right. Yeah, I remember that story. <laughs> they too. should have listened to her. So, you know, it's just I I, I believe I believe one in on one's day to day life, you have to maintain an optimistic attitude, and you have to be hopeful, and you have to communicate with your friends and neighbors and things like that, and and be resilient to to the changes that come. But I I. I don't want people to be complacent and think that life will keep going on the way it has for the last century or half century or whatever, because I don't think that's true. And I think there's a lot of reason to believe that we're going to have to respond in very creative ways to, you know, things like climate change and, and, and fossil fuel depletion, because they're going to have really big effects on our economy and how we live our lives. So I guess that's sort of a good concluding statement. Well, other places to buy your books, just to, just so you know, is it's oh, available okay. at Barnes and Noble, and oh, cool Elevation Books. Whoa, that's looks like it's a collector's item kind of book. eBay, as well as Amazon. And again, yeah. the name of your book is the Environmental Documentary Cinema Activism in the Twenty First Century. So that's so if right. people want to get in touch with you, uh, how would they do that? Well, I, I guess I'm uh, willing to give you my regular email address, which is hamzatula at yahoo.com. That's 
That's H-A-M-Z-A-T-U-L-A at yahoo.com. I can also be reached through my university, at least from, so, you know, for the, for the near future. 2020. Before my retirement kicks in. Um, yeah. So you could probably reach me just by going to the Dominican University homepage and looking for faculty in the media, in the communications and media studies department. And I'm yes, sure you can you, get, uh, you uh, are found find me way. there too. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on our show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. I hope everybody feels like this was an hour well spent. You've been listening to the podcast, Creating the Life You Want, with me, Dr. Sonia M. Kelly, licensed clinical psychologist out of Sonoma, California. I can be reached via my website, Golden Temple Meditations. Dot com or my email golden temple meditations at gmail.com or at 707-292-6714. Thank you and tune in for more next month.